0: Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the Westside Audio Message podcast. As God's co-workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, in the time of my favor I heard you, and in the day of salvation I helped you. I tell you now is the time of God's favor, now is the day of salvation. We put no stumbling block in anyone's path so that our ministry will not be discredited. Rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. In great endurance, in troubles, hardships, and distresses, beatings, imprisonments, and riots, hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger, in purity, understanding, patience, and kindness, and in the Holy Spirit and in sincere love. In truthful speech and in the power of God, with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left. Through glory and dishonor, bad report and good report, genuine yet regarded as impostors, known yet regarded as unknown dying, and yet we live on, beaten, and yet not killed, and sorrowful, yet not always rejoicing, and poor, yet making many rich, and having nothing, and yet possessing everything. Uh, May I just lay out the uh, skeleton of my sermon for you? As we break down and organize what Paul has just written, there's an interesting form to it. We will, within this reading, see that there, he has mentioned nine distinct trials of a true disciple of Christ. I wonder if you consider yourself a true disciple of Christ. That would be your assessment. It would be God's assessment, too, I suppose. Nine trials of a true disciple of Christ. Nine. Next he lists, lists nine inner qualities of a true disciple of Christ. And then at the end, he lists nine paradoxes that we commonly face as a true disciple of Christ. You know what that makes? 27 points in my sermon today. <laughs> a minute per point would get us done in less than 30 minutes, but I don't think I can do that. But there's not, there's not a lot of... Things that I have to pause and say about each one of them. So mostly it'd be in list form, rather than trying to uh, enlarge upon each point. Get real. It's a pop cultural expression that's common enough. I think most of us here today understand that when we say "get real." Older generations might be more accustomed to something like "let's be serious." and get real. It's grammatically very sloppy. I understand that. But it's become become this familiar call to reality for all of us. It's what we say to somebody that we think is out of touch with reality. For instance, you go down to Good Burger and you put in your application, and they call you in for an interview and the manager asks you, how much do you expect to get paid? How many of you have ever submitted a, an application for a job that you know that the job has already been advertised as uh, a minimum wage job or, or something like that? And then on the application, they say, how much do you want to get paid? Does that make sense to anybody? I know what the job pays. So here you are in this applying for flipping burgers down at Good Burger. How much do you expect to get paid? And you say, I want $18 an hour. And the manager has every right to say, get real. We don't pay that around here. You know, as a pastor, I meet a lot of different people. and I, I see a lot of different circumstances, and I hear a lot of different stories. I deal with a lot of different situations. And in the course of encountering this broad spectrum of people... Their circumstances, their philosophies. I get my fair share of people that they just have their head in the clouds. They have unrealistic expectations about things. And these people are sometimes very hard to bring them back down and get them in touch with reality. The world wouldn't be as patient as I am. I want to shake them and say, get real. So Paul starts off this chapter or this portion of his letter to the Corinthians and he, he warns them first of all not to behave in such a way that would embarrass or frustrate the grace of God. And then from there he expands this out and he tells them what Christianity is really like because these people in this church at Corinth They were not the only people, but in this case, they didn't have a realistic concept of Christianity. I think this is appropriate today because I think the chances are that not everyone here today has a realistic concept of what Christianity is all about. So as we read this and study this, and I unpack it for you, I hope we can get real. I hope we can drop our unrealistic expectations of Christianity and find out what the Bible really says of what it means to be a follower of Christ. Not only do we sometimes have false expectations of Christianity, but I think uh, as the world watches us, they have unrealistic expectations of us. I have a second cousin that is not saved. As much as I can know something like that, I'm, I'm going to make a safe assumption he's, he's not a Christian, doesn't profess to be a Christian. But he had said something the other day about, he brought up a, a news article about some corruption in uh, Christianity, I believe it was actually corruption in the ministry. And he seized upon that opportunity to say, and that's why I'm not a Christian because it's full of hypocrites. And somebody like that doesn't have a realistic expectation. Uh, I guess they expect anybody who is a Christian to be flawless and perfect, but they know they're not. I guess they expect Christianity to encompass only perfect people, and we don't. But there's unrealistic expectations from, from every direction of what people think of us and what we think of ourselves and what we think of God and what he ought to do for us and what we ought to be doing for him. So let's get real today. Let's find out what this is really about. We need to quit living in this fantasy world about Christianity. Serving God is much more serious than just the petty squabbles and pet doctrines that sometimes people occupy their time with in church. Paul gives us reality dose to the The church at Corinth. If I asked you to define Christianity, it'd be interesting to see what your take on on Christianity would be. If I asked you to define what it means for you to be a Christian, I would say that you'd probably gravitate towards all the happy things. It means I'm saved. It means I'm going to heaven. It means I have this loving relationship with God. I think it'd be safe to say most people would try and describe Christianity like that. But there's a lot more to it than just the good, fluffy side. And I think most of you here today, even if that would have been your default answer, you would readily admit you know, there is more to it. This can be tough, this can be very difficult to live out. And I don't know what every one of you think about Christianity today how long you've been a Christian, whether you are a Christian. I think some people have been influenced by what other people tell them about Christianity. There are people in Christianity that absolutely anger me. They shame. They are shameful. uh, I don't want them to have any part to do with Christ because they do not represent Christ like Christ needs to be represented And if you're disgusted with them, there's a good chance I'm disgusted with them too. But Jesus told a parable and said there was a man that had a field of wheat and the workers noticed that there was weeds, poisonous weeds, tares, the Bible says, among the wheat. And they came back and told the owner, said, we've just discovered somebody has secretly sown tares among the wheat. Shall we go out there and rip it all up? And the man said, don't do that because you'll destroy the wheat. Just let it alone until the harvest. And then the man at the harvest, the man will separate the wheat from the tares. Now, we understand when he told that, that there's wisdom in understanding that it's not our business all the time to try and separate this out. We are forced to live with the fact that there are wolves among the sheep sometimes. There are hypocrites among the real family sometimes. Thank God it's not my assignment to have to try and separate that out because I would probably rip some wheat up in the process and make a big mess out of it. But God in the end is going to make a clean separation of this. So I don't know what you think about Christianity. I know that the convoluted the mess that this world makes out of it, I know the compromising mess that modern day revisionists make out of it when they try to restructure scripture to their own liking. I know the pathetic product that modern day hacks are producing out, out of Christianity. After they get done showing you all the shortcuts to Christianity. You know what a hack is? You know whenever you hack things, you, you, you convolute it. You change it. You make it work a different way than it's supposed to work for your convenience. And I think there are Christian hacks that are taking Christianity and they're hacking it and showing you different ways around and shortcuts and workarounds. And I know what a mess they're making out of it. I don't know what you thought about Christianity when you started your journey. I don't know if you're going to hit a wall in your Christian walk and say, well, that's not what I thought it was all about. That's why we got to have to get real today so we don't have any misgivings about what it means to live for Christ. Christ invited many people to follow him. But he repeatedly tested their resolve by reminding them if you follow me, it's not going to be easy. That's where we start getting real with this. If you think following Christ means that everything is going to fall in place for your life and everything's going to be perfect, you're not real. This can be very, very difficult. There's a story of two disciples who come running to Jesus with a special request. Jesus had just tipped his hand a little bit. He had divulged to them that he was going to he, his kingdom was going to come. And he said, "You you 12, his favorite 12, he said, you're going to sit on thrones with me." Now, that stuck in their in their brain. And they thought about that for a while. And they began to dream what it was like to be in the kingdom and Christ on a throne and they're sitting on thrones, and the idea really appealed to them. It grew on them. And the more they thought about it, two of them ran to Jesus when it finally dawned on them, there's only two seats available next to Christ. So they run and say, we have a request. Would you grant that we set one on the right side and the other on your left side? It'd be so cool to be at the head of the table with you. And Jesus said, you don't know what you're asking. He said, can you be baptized with a baptism that I am baptized with? Can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? In other words, he says, my baptism and the cup I have to drink is is an experience, those are experiences of difficulties and trials. And what you're volunteering for and what you're wanting, you don't know what you, you think this is all fun and games. You think this is all about prestige. You think how nice that's going to be to be somebody. But to be somebody, you have to be nobody. In order to be first, you have to be willing to be last. And he was taking this twisted attitude that they weren't real. They didn't know what it was all about. And he had to give them a reality check. He said, you don't know what you're asking and what it involves. Quite simply... Their problem was they were seeking the glory before they had gained the victory. And they didn't know the cost of the victory. They were dreaming unrealistic dreams of what it means to sit on a throne in Christ's kingdom. They were imagining honor and prestige and ignoring that there's any price that goes along with that. Let me dive into what Paul said about Christianity and the Corinthians who had false concepts, mistaken notions about their Christianity, and about leaders in Christianity, and about apostles, and about true disciples, and they were all messed up. And Paul, first of all, lays out nine trials that a true disciple of Christ may face. There might be more than that. He just, he just listed nine. I think nine's enough. And if you'll notice in this list, and in in my notes, these are nine trials. They are in three different categories, and there are three in each category. They're similar, but they're distinct. First of all, he said, as a Christian, as a leader, as a disciple, as a true disciple, you can expect general difficulties in your life. So why do we do so much whining and complaining if right from the start, we know it's going to be tough going? Why do we whine and complain and say, Why me, Lord? Because you chose. That's the way it is. It's going to be like that. Get tough. Get real. And under these general difficulties that we're going to face, he uses these three words. He uses afflictions, hardships, and distresses. And to notice the distinction on those things. We understand that afflictions is a broad term that covers all kinds of tribulations and almost serves as a heading for the next two as it gets more specific. So it's going to be just afflictions in general. But But more specific, there's going to be hardships. That means you will be deprived of necessities. If your neighbor is sleeping, wake them up and say, listen to this. You will de- be deprived of necessities such as food and water and shelter and clothing and rest. Does that sound like the kind of kind of gospel that you're hearing preached today? Does that sound like the kind of message that's coming forth? From slick evangelists that have their own Lear jets that are flying around, and wearing two thousand dollar suits and alligator shoes snapping up at their knees, does this sound like the Paul said? If you're going to be serving Jesus, there's going to be afflictions. There's going to be hardships. There will be times. If you the deeper you move into serving Him the more difficult it's going to be. There will be times when you won't even have basic necessities. You won't have the food, the water, the clothing, the the rest. You And you're going to say, is this what I signed up in order to serve God? Sometimes, yes. Yet I see a generation today that doesn't act like serving God means you have to sacrifice anything. It's a generation that wants everything, and they want it now. Not only do they want it now, they will go in debt to have everything now. This has nothing to do with understanding the sacrificial style of living for Jesus Christ. I wish we could get some of our older people who understand what it means to appreciate the value of a nickel, to disciple some of our young people that don't even want a nickel if it's it's not worth keeping. We need some discipleship here. on Appreciating the value, appreciating... Appreciating hardships and appreciating sacrifice and putting yourself last and putting God first. Get real. God wants to call young people out of this church. He wants to call young people out of our youth group. He wants to call young people out of our T and T to be missionaries to go to other countries. He wants to call young people to have a burden for the lost in other places where you go and you eat, feed, you eat food that is repulsive to your refined American tastes, that you live in conditions you never thought you would ever be able to stomach, that you go in places where danger abounds. God wants to call young people to do this, but I'm afraid that young people are not interested in sacrificing. They're looking to grow up and get a job and buy things and have things and, and, and life's going to be a party. Would you get real for a minute? Hell's burning. Eternity is forever. And there are lost people in this world that have never heard the name of Jesus Christ and do not know that he came to save them. And somebody is going to have to be willing to go and say, I, my heart burns. For a lost and a dying world for they have no hope outside of Jesus Christ. Can Jesus touch your heart and call you from the comforts and the ease of the United States of America and say, come, I want to take you where nobody else will go because there are people who need to hear this gospel message. We want that to happen from our church. Has it even entered into the thoughts of anybody what it means to sacrifice for God? Let's get real distresses, literally narrow places, places of great pressure. That's what we will experience as as God-fearing Christians. Maybe not every day that we live, but there's times when that will happen. Times when we don't feel like we have much wiggle room. We feel trapped. We feel overwhelmed. And all three of these are preceded by the thought that he said, you need to learn the art of patience. And then he told them about all these tribulations that we're going to face. So we have this unrealistic view of our commitment to Christ. We're probably wasting a great deal of time praying to God to deliver us from these things when God's plan is, I want to teach you how to be patient. I want you to kind of like spend that two weeks with nothing so you understand what it means to fall in love with me. I want your character to be developed because you realize that life's not going to be handed to you on a silver platter. The next group is persecutions. That is, things that are brought on by other people against you. He mentions stripes and beatings. You know, Paul was, in the 11th chapter of 2 Corinthians, he says he was whipped five times. And you read the book of Acts, and we only read one time. There was a lot of things that happened in Paul's life that we don't know. It wasn't until he admitted later. It wasn't just being flogged that one time and thrown into prison. That happened to me four more times. What a trooper he was for God. Imprisonments speaks for themselves. Tumults, riots. Every place Paul went, people rioted. Wouldn't that kind of get you depressed? I would hate, hate, I would hate to think that every time that I personally walked into Walmart, riot broke out. I'd get a complex. Lord, what's wrong with me? Every time I go to town, people start throwing stuff at me and try to haul me out of town and kill me. I said, Lord, what's wrong with me? And Paul experienced that all the time. He went into a town and they'd, they'd, they'd riot against him. A mob scene would, would be created. They'd haul him out of town. They'd beat him. The third group is impositions that go along with the apostleship. He said, labors, that's hard work. How many of you know serving God, if you're going to do it right, not the cheap way, not the hack way, the right way, it's hard work. And people say, I can't do that because it's too hard. You have unrealistic expectations. It's hard work. Anything you want that's worthwhile in life, you realize it takes hard work. If you want the right relationship with God, it takes hard work. There's just no way around it. Watchings, which is sleepless nights. Fastings, which was hunger. And these are things that Paul brought upon himself because of one reason, because he made the choice. He could have walked out of that any time and not had riots anymore. Not stirred up the mobs against him. And not suffered the sleepless nights. And and the perils of thieves and perils of robbers and perils of shipwrecks. He could have left it all behind. But he had it because he made a choice. Because the more important for him to take the good news to the lost than it was for him to be comfortable. There are certain impositions and inconveniences and sacrifices that just go along with living for Jesus. And these should not be any secret. Here are some examples of how serving God can and will at times impose on your lifestyle. First of all, Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Those two are inseparable. We like to say we love Jesus, but I see too many examples where we don't follow through with the actions of what it really means to demonstrate we love Jesus. Loving Jesus is a romantic notion about he saved me, he gave me a home in heaven, and when I die, I'm going to have eternal life. I love him so much for that. You know what? Jesus said, if you love me, Keep my commandments. That's not that hard to understand. It must be much harder to do. Because I see too many people that they say, I love Jesus, but they're not following Jesus' commandments. We have to get real. If you dedicate yourself to Christ, you are agreeing by contract to live by His rules and not by your rules. You've got to live by his rules and not the world's rules. What Christ expects me to do is the most important thing, not what I want to do and not what the crowd wants me to do. The second thing is Jesus said, if anyone wants to follow me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. If any person chooses to follow Christ, that person must renounce all rights and all expectations of comfort and ease. It's like enlisting in the military. We've got a number of ex-military people here today, and you understand exactly what it is. You understand when you sign up, you are agreeing to a hard lifestyle. You are agreeing to the discipline, the rigor. You don't get to bring your Winnie the Pooh pillow with you. They don't provide you a queen size bed with pillow top mattresses. You don't order off the menu. You don't send the steak back if it's too rare. And you don't get to lie in bed until noon. You don't get to wear your pajamas around the base. You don't get to wear your pants down to your knees. You don't go around with your shirt untucked and your shoes untied. You signed up and this is what it's going to be, mister, sister. You know it when you signed up. And I think that's part of the problem with Christianity. We are not letting people know right up front. When you sign up for Christianity, it's Christ's rules. It's not what you want to do. It's what he wants you to do. Be prepared to deny yourself and take up your cross daily because Jesus said, if any man follows me, he's going to take up a cross daily and follow me. The nine inner qualities of a true disciple. These are in pairs, except for the last one which stands by itself. The first pair, purity. That means practical Righteousness. Practical righteousness. In other words, if I'm going to follow God, there's going to be changes in my lifestyle. I'm going to reevaluate the things that I once thought nothing about, and suddenly because it does not please God and it does not exhibit a proper testimony, I choose not to do those things anymore because I'm going to follow Christ. Number two, knowledge. That is practical understanding. The second pair we have that goes together is patience and kindness. Patience is that ability to bear up under the, under the oversights and the wrongs inflicted by others without retaliation. And I think we're kind of conditioned by this day and age in this society to get even instead of just giving it to God and praying like Jesus, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. We're recruiting lawyers to sue somebody going to get even. Kindness is just love in action. The third pair that he says should be the marks of the inner quality of a true disciple of Christ is being in the Holy Spirit. That is walking in, ministering in the power of the Holy Spirit. We call ourselves a Pentecostal church. We believe in the power of the Holy Spirit do we have people walking in the power of the Holy Spirit? Do we have people ministering in the power of the Holy Spirit? You don't have to have a credential to minister in the power of the Holy Spirit. You don't have to be called to stand up here and, and uh, preach a message to minister in the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm challenging you, you, you younger people today in Christianity. Why don't you ask God to use you in the power of the Holy Spirit wherever you're working? I challenge you to learn to walk in a new dimension. One where the Holy Spirit is leading you and guiding you and counseling you and the words that you say are are saturated with the power of the Holy Spirit to where it grips the hearts of people because they've given you an opportunity to speak into their life. No more secret service Christians running around but people are going out there in the power of the Holy Spirit. If we could undo everyone to the power of the Holy Spirit, walking the Holy Spirit that leaves this building today to go into the world, do you know how many people would be touched? Every one of you, I don't care what stage of Christianity you are in today, if you would just take the challenge that I'm issuing this morning, that, Lord, when I leave this building today, would you let me walk in the power of the Holy Spirit among my coworkers? Would you give me the words to speak and the boldness to speak it for you so I can change lives around me to be a light in darkness? You'll find out there's a whole dimension to living that that is far beyond anything you ever imagined. You can come home, just like the disciples came back to Jesus, just shouting the victory. Lord, we went out there and demons were subject to us in your name. How surprising, how refreshing to know you really can have spiritual power. Walking in the power of the Spirit. Walking in sincere love that is without hypocrisy. The fourth pair is the word of truth. True disciples of Christ. Realize that unfruitfulness will destroy their testimony. And the power of God, how we represent anybody or anything, how can we represent them without having something that represents delegated power at our disposal? The law officer out there represents the law. He has a badge. Him and his fleshly body and his badge cannot physically stop my car if I want to run over him. You know what stops it? He stands there in the delegated authority of the law. He stands in the middle of the road and he holds up his hand. And he's no match for my car except that he has authority. Authority. That's one of the marks of people following Jesus. is not only they know who this man is and they can tell you something about him, but they come in the authority of the name of Jesus Christ. And the ninth one stands alone. Weapons of righteousness in the right hand and the left. It's the entire arsenal of God made available to those who will trust and serve Him. And I'm here to tell you we need the arsenal of God in this day and age. I moved to the last nine. Didn't that go quickly? Pray for me it goes as well on the last nine. These are nine paradoxes that we commonly face as a true disciple of Christ. These paradoxical conditions exist in the life of a true disciple. And sometimes it even confuses us that our life is a veritable stew of paradoxes. And Paul listed it this way. At the same time, we have honor and dishonor. What's with that? At the same time that I have people that will... love me and, and compliment me and tell me what a great job I'm doing? I have other people that want to put a contract out on me. And you're living in this world where you're, you've got the love and the hate just coming at you all the time. I, I hear that from time to time. I can't say all the time, but from time to time. I have some of you that are my dear friends and so loyal come back and tell me, I just ran into so-and-so the other day. And basically, you might as well just tell me, and boy, do they hate you. (laughs) By the way, you describe your interaction with them. That guy's still there. (laughs) Honor, but dishonor. You're going to live for God? Some people are going to appreciate that. Some people are going to hate you because you do. Evil reports and good reports. I keep a file. For as long back as I can remember, and people have been writing writing me notes, good and nasty, I keep a file. And I like to pull out the file and read the nasty notes once in a while. It's become entertaining at this point. At one time, it was really difficult, but now every once in a while I just need some really good entertainment. That's some great literature. Evil reports and good reports. Number three, accused of being a deceiver, but you're true. That one is really difficult. Lord, if we're preaching the truth, if this is the truth, how dare anybody accuse us of preaching false doctrine? How dare any of us uh, be accused of leading people astray and filling their minds with junk and garbage? This is truth. This is truth. We're not supposed to be enduring those kind of accusations. If they don't like us, fine. But don't call truth lies. Lies and wrong that just doesn't Paul said it's going to happen as being unknown and yet well known as dying and yet we live as chastened but not killed as sorrowful and yet always rejoicing that's the one we all could probably spend some time sharing testimony about as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Because things come into your life that are difficult to deal with, don't they? Yet somehow, some way, down deep inside, you find the way to sing the song of praise unto God. Like the story of the man that was that was kidnapped and beaten and put in the trunk of a car and hauled off, and he, he just felt like for certain he's been taken out of the country, probably going to be murdered. And they're in this, this beaten condition. All I can think of riding in the trunk of that car was to sing, in moments like these, <laughs> I sing out a song. I sing out a love song to Jesus. I, how can you do that in the grips of evil and still have A message of hope on your lips. As sorrowful and yet always rejoicing. As poor and as poor and deprived as we could be as servants of God. Yet the ability to enrich in somebody else. As having nothing (laughs) and yet possessing all things. And that is the life of a Christian. And such are the strange paradoxes. The real deal. So, you write your description of Christianity and you tell all the good things. You write of joy and peace that you find when you finally surrender to God. And these are true, but it's only half the story. Living your life for Christ can and probably will, at some point in your life, generate some of the greatest challenges you've ever had in your life. And the enemy's going to try and encourage you to say, well, if I wasn't trying to live for God, this wouldn't be happening to me. Some of you, have you ever heard that voice? (laughs) The enemy ever tried to slip that one in on you? You didn't have this problem until you started your journey for Jesus. Hell yeah, he's good at that. Right now in Iraq, the ISIS... Militants are waging no holds barred war against Christians. You've been reading about it. The things, the atrocities that are going on there are unthinkable. In the town of Mosul, Iraq, which is literally the cradle of Christianity in that region. Christianity is as old there in that country, older than any other place. The cradle of Christianity has virtually been scrubbed of all Christians. History, the rich history of Christianity going back hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, it's gone. And the ISIS wants to wipe it from the face of the earth. What Christians have not been murdered, have run out of the town and into the mountains, and are isolated without water, without food. And as the ISIS is closing in on them, the Christian parents are taking their children who are starving and dehydrating and will be raped or beaten or killed by the terrorists and they're going and throwing their children off the cliff and saying, it's better that you die suddenly, quickly, as to die the tormentous death that awaits you if these people catch us. Can, Can you throw your child off the cliff? I can't even imagine that your Christian brothers and sisters are doing that as we speak today. You see on... The screen, the uh, Arabic letter N. It's called Noon. N U N. Noon. It's the abbreviated references that reference that they use for the word Nazarene, and the word Nazarene is code for Christian. Following the Nazarene. So. The ISIS derisively calling Christians the Nazarenes and using this symbol are painting this symbol on houses and businesses known to be occupied by Christians. That means that you're marked and you're going to die. And the Iraqi Christians who you would think would not want to be associated with the mark, are taking up the mark and proudly wearing it because they have a choice. We can run, we can hide, we can deny, or if you want to call me a follower of Christ, I'll wear the badge. So they're now proudly wearing the end, the noon. Being accused of being a follower of the Nazarene, they say, Yes, we are. It may cost us everything. You can see in the second picture there's a little red dot. It's hard to see, but that is the symbol that's been painted for a house that's been marked. That's what I call real. They're not having petty arguments over silly things that people get involved in in church. They're facing life or death because of their faith. They're not like some churches arguing over the color of the carpet or the way the service is conducted. They're making decisions about whether they're really going to stand for their Christianity and die for it or not. That's what I call real. And Paul said, I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus Christ. He physically bore the scars that testified of Jesus. Placed there by the persecutors. But he bore them with pride. This is what it cost me to serve Jesus. I'm so proud I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now in the simplest form... In the simplest terms, people, being a Christian most fundamentally and most importantly means being connected with Christ. If we're truly his disciples, if we're associated with the Nazarene, that designation is probably eventually going to draw fire from the enemy. That designation for some people in the world already means death. There is a war on Christianity right now, 2014, like we personally have never seen our entire lives. Mass genocide of Christians in Africa. Persecution and genocide of Christians in Iraq, in Syria. The Coptic Christians in Egypt under persecution. And right here in the United States of America, the tide of opinion turning against Christianity. Hating Christ. Hating the man who had hate for nobody. Hating the man that did nothing but good and forgave the sinner when others would have killed them and Jesus forgave them. And sent them on. Hating the man who took the place on the cross for them. And said I don't want them to die a sinner's death. I will take it upon myself. Hating the man who did nothing but love them. And hating the people who have his mark on their life. We hate Christians because. Why? Why do you hate Christians? Why do you hate Christ? Why? Is it because of some fringe group? that has misrepresented Christ or Christianity to the world, that's no reason. They are disgusting people anyway. But the Christ that I know loves you and gave everything for you. And He gave the challenge to me and to you to be like Him. And we fail many times. But that shouldn't be a reflection on Christ. Peter shrunk away from his first encounter of persecution for Christ's sake. When they came and said, you're one of them. And he cursed and he swore and he said, it's not me. And he couldn't handle what it meant to be a follower of Christ on that first time. But I know that his failure gripped his heart as he somehow worked his way through that and prayed his way through that and became the great preacher of the gospel message there on that day of Pentecost. And then Paul wrote these profound words from Philippians 3.10. He said, I want to know Christ. Yes, I want to know the power of his resurrection. So far, so good. Don't you? But then he went on and he said, I want to participate in his sufferings. I want to die like he died. And I don't hear that a lot. Let's get real. That's the reality of Christianity. With the open persecution of Christianity exploding around the world and encroaching here, I'm telling you, if you're not in this to love Christ more than you love your very life, you need to walk out the door today and quit. You need to resign now. If you're not prepared for how hard it's going to get, this is not for you. Hatred for Christians and Christianity and Christ is spreading like wildfire around the world. And we may think we have it good now. But whenever the Christians, because of their beliefs and their stance, and simply because they believe the Bible and the truth of the Bible against the grain of this world, are going to be persecuted and hauled off into prison and sued and families split up and children taken away from the families and false charges brought against you. I don't know if you have the stomach for this or not. And that's the reason I preach this sermon today because it's time, people, with what we see coming down the road... It's time we get real. I don't know what you thought this Christianity was all about, but it's really about being faithful to Christ until the day he calls us home. Unflinching, unrelenting, holding to the truth. Are you ready for that? Worship team, come.